Tonight on this recorded edition of Extension 720, we visit with an old friend to talk about an old friend of his, Scott Berg, an eminent biographer who has done uh, prize-winning biographies of, let me see, in turn, it began with Maxwell Perkins. That's correct, in 1978. And the second was Sam Goldwyn. Sam Goldwyn, and the third was Lindbergh. Exactly. We've talked about every one of those books. We have. And now we're going to talk about a book that you've just done, which has rapidly ascended to the top of the bestseller list, a book about a woman who, whom you befriended when she was about 75. Exactly, 75. a woman who died only a few weeks before the occasion when we are recording this. That's correct. We speak, of course, of? Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn. It is... Uh, what year that you go knocking on her door? I go knocking on her door in 1983, in the spring. On assignment from Esquire magazine. On assignment from Esquire, uh, yes, she had agreed to be interviewed for a 50th anniversary edition of Esquire in which they wanted profiled 50 people who had made a difference mm -hmm. in the last century. And, and I had nominated her um, and uh, made the arrangements to go do a two-day interview. It was the only time, actually, I've ever tape recorded anybody uh, just because we, it was going to be reprinted in Q&A form. Anyway, we seem to have hit it off after the interview enough that after the interview... She said you'll need two days to really plumb my depths. Yes. It turned out you needed 20 years. <laughs> yes, and I still didn't plumb the depths, but I, I, I went pretty far down, I think. But after the interview, she said, what are you doing for the weekend? Because uh -huh. I'm going to my country house in Connecticut. Do you want to come along? Well, no, I'm busy, Miss Hepburn. <laughs> you know, I have to do my laundry this weekend. Uh, so obviously, I went up uh, to this little place called Fenwick, which is just off of Old Saybrook, Connecticut. We spent two days there alone. And then we went back into the city where we had dinner five nights in a row. At the end of the fifth night, I said, look, I have to go home to Los Angeles where I live. I have work to do. I was working on my Goldwyn book. And, uh, and she said, well, you know, I know you live in L.A., but you come to New York a lot. You need a place to stay. Hotels are expensive and cold. And here's the key to the house. Your bedroom is now on the third floor. And here's the phone number, um, you know, when, when you need to tell people where you stay. And dinner's at 7. Let us know by 3 if we're setting a place. Uh, where is the townhouse in Manhattan? East 49th Street, between 2nd and 3rd Avenues, mm -hmm. a little area called Turtle Bay. Quite wonderful because 49th Street and 48th Street, uh, the, the houses, the backs of the houses back onto a private garden. So only those people who live within that block can enter the garden. Did she live essentially alone? She did live alone. With no help? There was there was help, but it wasn't live-in help. There was uh, daytime. There, yeah. there would be a, a woman who cooked and cleaned who arrived early in the morning mm -hmm. and left after the dinner dishes were washed. And there was a woman named Phyllis Wilburn who was a kind of companion, major domo, kept the trains running on time type, sort of secretary. And she, too, uh, arrived early and, and went home uh, late every night after dinner. It's a fascinating book, of course. And she was a fascinating woman. But, of course, you will instantly agree with me, I think, that there was a certain air of sadness about her. I think to a degree there was an air of sadness. I think that might be why the door... Not that she's sad or depressed. No, but... no, I understand. But I think that is perhaps the key to why the door was open to me. Sure. And that is this is basically a woman who lived so independently, so fiercely independently, who slammed the door for so many years. I think when she was 75 when I met her and she had just been in a near fatal car wreck, had almost lost her foot, was living a sedentary life for the first moment, and only a moment did she do that. But I think she looked around, was considering her mortality. All her friends were dead or dying. 
And I think she saw this 33-year-old biographer standing mm -hmm. at her door, and she thought two things. Young man, I could let him in he, if he's, you know, friend-worthy. Uh, and second of all, maybe somebody to help me sort out the pieces of my life and maybe work with me answering those questions. And what was to be sorted out? What were the, the issues of her life about which she was somewhat uncertain and which you wanted to pursue? I think almost everything in her life. She was a woman who barely reflected. She always mm -hmm. lived in the present with an eye on the future, almost never recollected. She really didn't like talking about the past, and I think she did it with very few people. Um, you know, she wasn't a sweet old lady who liked to tell anecdotes of, of the old days. So I think the questions really, be, I mean, they ranged, the, our conversations went everywhere from her parents and what kind of parents they were and what kind of childhood they provided for her. Um, her, her brother hanged himself. Was that an accident or was it intentional? Up through her there, relationship. There had been other suicides in her extended family. There had been Suggesting a kind prior. of depressive string. Absolutely, which was something, again, she really didn't look at before. Mm -hmm. I mean, she sort of knew it had happened, but the Hepburns were always very much about on with the show. Okay, something good happened, something bad happened, fine. It's done. Let's get on to the next thing. So she just never stopped really to think these things through. And it's why in this little note I've written to this memoir, I, I wasn't a sounding board so much. I often felt more like an anvil. And I felt she was really using me to pull out a topic and, and hammer it out. And she would often ask me to ask her questions, to elicit answers. Or sometimes she would just ask me the questions. Why do I think this happened? Why, why did this film not work? Why did Spencer Tracy drink so much? Mm -hmm. Th these sort of things. They make so much these days, and they've made so much in the obituaries of her as a sort of a feminist before the new feminism emerged, and the truly independent woman who in some ways breaks the assigned um, female role. And that's... A, that may be true, but it's rather a cliche to view her that way, don't you think? I think it is true, and um, it's missing bigger points. Uh -huh. I, I think I think there's no question about it. Um, I, I always found it interesting, uh, really, to look at, first of all, her mother's feminism, which she was rather interested in herself. Um, but also, there were variations on Catherine Hepburn's own feminism. And a lot of, of a lot of feminists today really rather resent Catherine Hepburn because they think in some ways she sold out by becoming so subservient in her love for Spencer Tracy, especially. Yeah, well, of course, that cat was let out of the bag a long time ago by Garson Kanan. Yes. Who did the book. Indeed. What did he title it? Uh, it was uh, uh, Tracy and Hepburn. I Tracy think and Hepburn, as simple as that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it does indeed sound like a, a somewhat messy affair, but uh, actually held together by a very strong mutual love. Or was it more one way than the other? No, I think it was definitely a strong mutual love. I, th I think it was the big love affair for each yeah. of them. Um, it, it had complications. I mean, alcohol flowed through it. Um, I mean, Spencer Tracy was, was definitely an alcoholic. And I think in some ways, and this was something Hepburn and I hammered out as well, in many ways she was an enabler. She had a great missionary streak in her. She loved fixing birds with broken wings. Um, but again, there was so much more to it than that. Of course, he, um, as you may clear, 
and you also make clear that she rather avoided thinking about this, he was something of a womanizer, even during the long term of his relationship with her. He was, and I, I think um, I think for the most part, his womanizing uh, was certainly diminished during his 26 years with Catherine Hepburn, uh, and the times it would resurface were those moments where he felt abandoned, where she would go off to do a play, or she would go off and, and do a movie on location, she'd go to Africa or whatever, and I think he was someone who really uh, just couldn't stand to be alone. Uh, as most alcoholics cannot, I think, uh, when he was alone, he was left with the demons. Of course, they did how many films together? They did nine films. Nine. Do you think that the bond between them made those films work? Oh, I, th I think that's unquestionable. I, I think it's one of those things, I mean, people talk about movie cliches, but chemistry, there really was something going on, and it's... And it's quite interesting when you look at their first film together. Which woman, one was that? Which is Woman of the Year. Uh -huh. And, and you know, while I was getting to know Catherine Hepburn in the beginning, I was also researching my Samuel Goldwyn biography. So I was meeting so many of the characters who had worked with her. Uh, and I remember um, talking with Joseph Mankiewicz, who directed uh, Woman of the Year. Um, and, and we were talking about the relationship. He said, it's just the most amazing thing. You literally see them fall in love on screen. Uh -huh. He said, we all felt it on the set, but when you look at the movie, and it's true, 60 years later you look at that movie and you see them falling in love. In that movie, she's playing a character really based on a woman who at the time was very important in American journalism, Dorothy Thompson. That's correct. Yeah, she's a real extension of Dorothy Thompson, who was, who was just one of those roving world figures who could do everything. Who had a tempestuous and difficult marriage for a while with a significant American writer, Sinclair, Sinclair Lewis. Lewis. Exactly. Exactly. Whereas here, Spencer Tracy's just made a sports writer from upstairs. Exactly. He's, in, he, at the newspaper. He's just a regular Joe. Yeah. Um, but a, a, a kind of wonderful character. Mm -hmm. And um, and the magic just really began to work with him in that picture and, and goes right up to guess who's coming to dinner. So in some ways, while it was always fictionalized in the movies, you really saw at least a version of their love affair on the screen yeah. over 26 years. It's remarkable. As she, as she said, we were together longer than Abbott and Costello. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good line. She had. Obviously, and it shows up in your book with some very sharp lines. She had really a kind of cynical but kind of amused, tolerant view of most things around her. I think she did. She she was a one sharp cookie. I yeah. mean, she really saw things for what they were. She saw herself for what she was. She saw Hollywood for what it was. Um, she knew the goods of it, but she she always felt there was a kind of silliness to it as well. She. She had almost everybody's number, I think. And she had a, certainly an ambivalence towards Hollywood. She had much reason to uh, feel testy towards the industry, which nope. for a while was rejecting her. Uh, yes, I mean, you know, after six years in Hollywood, she was literally ridden out on a rail. I the mean, famous line, who said she was box office poison? Well, actually, it was, it was the theater owners who the independent theater owners, there was a guy named Harry Brandt who ran that, mm -hmm. that organization, and he made a list one day in 1938. He said, you know, here are a half dozen actors. Please don't make films with them anymore. They are box office poison. And Dietrich was on the list. Catherine Hepburn, of course, was on the list. Um, I think Garbo had just made that list, too, in fact, uh, because their, their popularity was waning. As indeed, you know, we don't realize most stars to last longer than five years is really something. A few can have a career of 10. Very few women have a career of 20 years. 
And that's kind of the brilliance of Katharine Hepburn's career. For 60 years, she was not just acting, she was still a movie star. She was still the lead in these pictures, carrying the films. Yeah, but you know, uh, 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 Richard Schickel makes an interesting point in his review of your book. In fact, Schickel was here talking about his book only mm. uh, three or four months ago, I guess. But he says that for the last, is it, does he say the last 10 years or the last 20, she wasn't really acting. She was doing Catherine Hepburn in uh, three or four other films, but it was sort of a set piece. I think to some degree that's true, but I would say she was still acting up until on Golden Pond uh, in the 80s. Um, and I don't think that was completely Catherine Hepburn. Obviously a lot of it was, but listen, she was playing Catherine Hepburn back in the 40s for that matter. I mean, Philadelphia story and Woman of the Year, in, in large measure she was playing Catherine Hepburn, as indeed I think most real stars play themselves to some to degree. Sure. That's to part sure. of what makes them stars. Was she then, by your measure, or by the measure of great actors, a great actor? I think she was an extremely good, maybe an occasionally great actor. I think, and I assert in my book, and this I definitely believe, that she established the greatest acting career of the century, and maybe ever, just because I don't know anybody who's been able to go 60 years as a star, as I said, uh, to win four Academy Awards, the first and the second are 50 years apart. I mean, this is kind of staggering. As for <clears throat> the acting, I think she was as good as the material. That is to say, you know, when you see her in Long Day's Journey and Tonight, mm. I think that's as good a performance playing Mary Tyrone yes. as anyone I have ever seen. Now, is she as good an actress in some of the Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn comedies? I don't think so, but the material was a lot more frivolous. Well, they're easier. Of course. Of than course. that particular role sure. in Long Day's Journey. But even, you know, I mean, she, she did a, a version of the Trojan Women with Vanessa Redgrave, and I thought she was very, very good in that. Um, some of the serious pictures, uh, the uh, A Delicate Balance, the Edward Albee play, um, as she says, and I quote her in the book, she never really knew what it was about, <laughs> but I think it's a wonderful performance nonetheless. And there she's certainly not playing Catherine Hepburn. One loves some of her comments as you record them on other actors, and we might sample a little bit of that when we return after a quick stop for some commercials. And we return to Scott Berg. You know, Scott, it occurs to me, I've probably not even yet given the official title of your new book. Let us make very clear that the book in question, and it's wonderfully readable and uh, quite informative, to say the least, about a woman we've all been fascinated by for our all of our lives. Yes. Uh, the, the title of that book is Kate Remembered by A. Scott Berg, the publisher's Putnam. It is Putnam. And... Um, the last time I looked, and I, that was this afternoon, it was second or third on the Amazon uh, sales list. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, and it's only been out a few days, and apparently it's just soared to the top. I, I, I just heard that it's number one in, in England, um, again, just in a day. Let us have a touch of Hepburn in the night. We've got one clip from Philadelphia Story. Uh. You can set the scene. Uh, well, I, I'll, I'm not it's sure. It's a scene at the pool. We know that much. Yes, um, and I think this is a scene with Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart. Mm -hmm. This is a, a marvelously structured play uh, because it's a woman about to get married, Tracy Lord. She is revisited by her ex-husband, who is Cary Grant, and her, her wedding is being covered by Jimmy Stewart, who is a reporter from Spy Magazine. In the course of it, all three men, the, the man who's about to marry her, Cary 
Grant, Jimmy Stewart, all profess their love for Tracy Lord. And it is set up as a horse race. And the play is so brilliantly done that up until the last moment, there's a logical reason for her to marry any one of the three guys. And here she is with two, two of them, two of the great actors of her time. You bet. Uh, Who she cast in the movie. She, she chose them. She, she actually had the play commissioned for her. Yes, actually, the playwright came to her and said, I have two ideas for plays, um, which, I, which I think could rescue you from yeah. box office poison. And she heard the two, and she picked Philadelphia Story, and he went off and wrote it with her in mind for every syllable of that play. That was Philip Barry. Philip yeah. Barry it was. And here's the scene from the film. Dexter, would you mind doing something for me? Anything what? Get the heck out of here. Oh, my dear Red, I couldn't do that. That wouldn't be fair to you. You need me too much. Would you mind telling me just what it is you're hanging around for? Oh, no, no, no. Please don't go, Mr. Connor. Oh, no, no. Please don't go, Mr. Connor. As a writer, this ought to be right up your street. Don't miss a word. I never saw you looking better, Red. You're getting that fine, tawny look. Oh, we're going to talk about me, are we? Goody. It's astonishing what money can do for people. Don't you agree, Mr. Connor? Not too much, you know. Just more than enough. Now, take Tracy, for example. There's never a blow that hasn't been softened for her. Never a blow that won't be softened. As a matter of fact, it even changed her shape. She was a dumpy little thing at one time. Only as it happens, I'm not interested in myself for the moment. Not interested in yourself? You're fascinated, Red. You're far and away your favorite person in the world. Dexter, in case you don't know... Of course, I... Mr. Connor. She's a girl who's generous to a fault. To a fault, Mr. Connor. Except to other people's faults. For instance, she never had any understanding of my deep and gorgeous thirst. That was your problem. Granted. But you took on that problem with me when you took me, Red. You were no helpmate there. You were a scold. It was disgusting. It made you so unattractive. Mm, a weakness, sure. And strength is her religion, Mr. Connor. She finds human imperfection unforgivable. When I gradually discovered that my relationship to her was supposed to be not that of a loving husband and a good companion, but... Oh, never mind. Say it. But that of a kind of high priest to a virgin goddess. Then my drinks grew deeper and more frequent, that's all. I never considered you as that, nor myself. You did, without knowing it. Pretty good. A fine scene. I didn't hear any Jimmy Stewart in there. As a matter of fact. <laughs> he was standing there. But he's standing there listening. <laughs> yeah. And I think... And that, I, that's less, less, less light and frothy than I remembered... That's yes, uh, no, there's there's a lot of uh, stuff thrown in there, yeah. it's, and that's that's the brilliance of the play that it plays very fast and very sparkling. But mm -hmm. underneath it, there's a real undertone to it. In many ways, it 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 reflects Hepburn herself. The big difference is, I think that line that that jumped out at me is uh, finding imperfection unforgivable. Catherine Hepburn wasn't that way, and, and not in real life. Uh, in, in fact, one of the great surprises to me in 20 years of getting to know her and putting this book together was was really how kind and generous she was. She was very giving, very tender soul, sometimes even sentimental, I was going to say. But I, 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 think, I think she was. Um, she really cared about other people. Who did she care, care about in those last 20 years or so that you knew her? Uh, she was essentially living in New York and up at the old family house in Connecticut. Exactly. Um, she did a few television films, and uh, that's right. Did she uh, she had done uh, the African Queen before you got to. Oh, know. long before, yeah. yes, because that was the fifties. I the would time, say that was her last major film. Well, no. Or I, Golden Pond. You yeah, think. and Golden Pond is is really her last yeah. major film. 
That's correct. And but she did a lot of television. In those years, essentially, in New York and Connecticut, and with so many of her old friends dead, as you say, yes. uh, what or who composed her circle? Well, there were, there were a handful of us, really. Um, a a um, newscaster in New York, Cynthia McFadden, was a very close friend. Um, the director, Anthony Harvey, who directed her in The Lion in Winter, mm -hmm. uh, he remained a very close friend. Um, from the old days uh, in acting, uh, Lauren Bacall um, visited regularly and, and was there and close to her in the very end. Uh, the great uh, Broadway producer, Robert Whitehead, who recently died, who was married to Zoe Caldwell, they remained very close. And that was pretty much the circle, one or two others. Um, but very few of us, um, as, you know, my age, <laughs> that, that was it. A few relatives, she had a, a surviving, uh, she has a surviving uh, brother and sister uh, who are about 90 and 88, um, and a, a bunch of nieces and nephews. And that's really the group. I saw her once on the street. In what city, here? In, in New York, oh, mm -hmm. uh, at a, a famous chocolatier up near Columbia University. It would have been Mondell's Chocolates. Mondell's Chocolates, you know them? No, it'd be, I mean, it fed me for 20 years. It was my cafeteria. The you couldn't go no, to Catherine well, Hepburn's well, without eating inside, Mondell's Chocolate. I was going in and she was exiting. <laughs> and uh, I was able, I had enough presence to say, uh, uh, I think probably good afternoon, Miss Hepper. <laughs> there you like go. That. Yes, if you're much she, that much. And she smiled. Yes. And walked on. And when I, I went, in, I had never been there before. I was on a mission I to see. get some candy for somebody else. Well, she smiled because she had just picked up her delivery of chocolate. I suppose. <laughs> and then I, I did ask the woman. That was Catherine Hepburn, wasn't it? She said yes. Of course, she's a regular customer. Totally regular customer. She would visit at least once a week to pick up a shipment. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, it was her fix. Well, chocolate is. Not as bad a fix, but she was also uh, not totally unfamiliar with alcohol, was she? Not unfamiliar, but you know, she was a social drinker. She, I mean, she had a drink or two before dinner, um, and if we stayed up really late, she might have a drink, you mm -hmm. know, after dinner by the fire, that sort of thing. But that was really as much as I ever saw her drink. Um, and then by the end of her life, when you know she had to take pills for the odd um, ailment or other, she really just gave it up altogether. Of course, she's in decline in your book. Yes. Um, and it's not an easy decline. Um, it wasn't an easy decline well, she for fights her friends. It. She fights against it. She, she does. She, you know, she was Catherine Hepburn. She, yeah. she was a fighter. Spunky always. She always was. And actually, you know, her, her decline, it's, it's hard for me to piece together just how bad the decline was because every time I saw her, with the exception of the last visit, which was four weeks before she mm -hmm. died, uh, and my last visit was May 30th of 2003, she was always Catherine Hepburn. She always looked magnificent. The hair was always done right. She was beautifully groomed. Um, but, but it was the carriage. It was the, it was the dignity, the grace. The, there was a strength. And it was only in that last visit. And she had all those qualities still. But it was the first time I saw the light go out in her eyes. She seemed in pain to me. And she was somewhat muddled as to who you were? Yes, she was, yes, a bit, yeah. Did that hurt you? It didn't hurt me just because I had seen it coming and I had seen her being muddled at seeing mm -hmm. others. And then actually before I left, the muddle went away. I mean, she knew who yeah. I was and what I was saying. That was made very clear to me. Um, as it was made very clear, as I report in the book, that I was really saying goodbye to her. And I knew it would be the last time I saw her. Of course, she lived a long life. She was, what, 96? 96. 
and they were 96 really good years. They were, I would say, 92 of those years were jam-packed mm-hmm. with activity and some of the most fascinating people in the world. She had a good time. She definitely had a good she time. She didn't suffer over reverses of fortune. So. She did, on with the show. Get on with it. What's mm-hmm. the What's the next place we're going to? What are we doing next? I love the line you um, quote in which she says, well, actually, I've been a sort of a prostitute. We all are. Uh, we, we People have to pay to see us and to see us do our thing. Exactly. And if they don't want to pay anymore, then uh, then it's over. It threw me a little when she, when she said that because because she was always rather proud, I thought, of being an actor. Yeah. Uh, she really did take pride in it and the work she did and the the work she invested into it. But one one night in one of our uh, fireside chats, basically, she said, no, you know, we really are prostitutes. I sell the way I look, the way I walk, the way I talk. And, and it came up actually in a conversation over retirement. And she basically said, as long as people are buying what I'm selling, I'm selling. And she was out there selling and actively into her late 80s. What was her very last performance? Uh, her last performance on film was um, uh, the Warren Beatty Annette Benning movie Love Affair, in which she mm-hmm. agreed to really the only cameo she ever did. She did one other cameo during World War II. It was the grandmother on the Azores or wherever it Exactly, was. yes. Yeah. They moved it to Tahiti. Oh, right. And in fact, when Warren Beatty was trying to cast it because I'd come to know him and he was trying to use my good offices to get Hepburn involved in the film, I kept saying, but you know, the problem is Catherine Hepburn, I know you want her desperately. She would never end her days in Tahiti. I mean, if you did it in Alaska, maybe, or something, <laughs> you know, that, that I could buy. Uh-huh. I said, if you, want it, if you want the old lady ending up in Tahiti, why don't you get Dorothy L'Amour and put her in a sarong? <laughs> I was um, fascinated by... Her comments on actors, some of the yes. major older actors and the current crop or the almost current crop of Hollywood stars. Mm-hmm. But what does she have? And I want to talk about that. What does she have against Woody Allen? I was amazed that she despised his films. Well, yes, it was it was that she despised that Woody Allen character so much. I uh-huh. think um, the 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 nebbish, uh, the so. Um, going inward all the time, analyzing himself all the time. The introspective, yes. That runs against her nature. Totally against her grain. What's the point? Get on with it. Why do you have to talk about yourself so much? Get on with it. So that infuriated her, and she just couldn't sit through any of them. Um, Although she thought he was a very good director, and she loved The Purple Rose of Cairo, which is the movie in which the actor walks off the screen and moves into real life, because she thought the movie within the movie captured the RKO movies when she Mm -hmm. was working at that studio in the 30s. And Alan doesn't appear in that film, he only directs. Correct. Wrote it and directed it. Exactly right. What did she have against Meryl Streep? Well, it wasn't a big thing, but it, it was. But she didn't like Meryl Streep. Make no mistake about it. I don't think she saw any of Meryl Streep's later work, but that earlier work, Sophie's Choice, French Lieutenant's Woman, uh, Out of Africa. She saw those films, and Meryl Streep was, uh, again, introspective kind of performances, very studied, serious accents, um, and and we were talking about Meryl Streep one night, and she just said, click, click, click. She was always aware of the gears working, and she thought there was something just too too studied, too mannered uh-huh. about the performance. And her comment about two of the great acting nights, her comments about Ralph Richardson and Laurence Olivier. Yes, quite interesting. Um, Ralph Richardson, uh, whom she always called Rafe, uh, 
she said she thought he was the best of those old boys, she said, meaning Olivier Richardson and Gilgood. Yeah. She really thought he was the most interesting actor, but mad as a hatter. I mean, she would tell stories every time that really he was just crazy, absolutely crazy. Olivier, she had an interesting comment and an interesting explanation. She said, first-rate actor, second-rate man. And the story she told was, you know, here he, he was married to Vivian Lee, um, or when she made Gone with the Wind, they weren't yet married. But they, she does Gone with the Wind. She wins the Academy Award. She's the most famous actress in the world. And suddenly Laurence Olivier says, oh, darling, that's wonderful, but we really should go out on stage now and do Shakespeare. Well, where he has the upper hand, obviously. And he gets all the glory for himself and really took her out of the limelight. A few years later, she decides to go back to Hollywood. She makes the Marlon Brando version of Streetcar Named Desire. Brilliant movie, brilliant performance. She wins the Academy Award again. Darling, we really must go out and do Shakespeare, you know, and get you. And again, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. And he really stepped on her film career. So that's what she had against him. First-rate actor, second-rate man. They appeared together only once in some television thing. Yes. I saw it. A Love Among the Ruins. Yeah. And uh, It's adapted from a French play, I believe. It was, and it was, and it was a, a beautifully done, beautifully done show. Yeah. Um, we, we, I, we've said nothing about the construction of this book. It was a deeply held secret uh, between you and the publishers, apparently. It was. This And it's turned out to be one of the great publishing secrets ever, apparently, because yeah. everybody kept it. And when I say everybody, there were really only about a half dozen people in on it. I wanted the book to be a secret uh, because in the last couple of years, periodically the press would come around to Hepburn's house and they'd stand at the end of the driveway. Uh, they were it's ghoulish, but they were on a kind of death watch. Yeah. And then there was a period where they just disappeared. And I thought if word got out that I were doing a book, they would start to come around again. And so after I finished writing the book in 1999 and 2000, I went to my editor, and I went to the copy editor, and I went to the jacket designer, and each of those people did, in this case, her work. And I explained the situation to them, and I said, listen, Catherine Hepburn's got to die someday, although she's given us no reason to believe she will. But when it happens, if there is a single photographer or a single newsman waiting outside that house, I will, for right or wrong, feel responsible that somehow it's leaked because of my book. So I ask you all to work in deep, dark privacy. So the book was... Uh completed about three years ago. It was, and it's literally been sitting in a vault in the publisher's office. Well, had, had the printing, the production all been done? It had been set in pages. So yeah. the type was set. I mean, literally, it was broken down into pages. Everything was done except the last three pages of the book. And it hadn't gone to press. That had much. not gone to press. No, but but the, but the master was sitting there. And the artwork for the cover. And artwork so on, all was all, the, all designed. So upon her death, they instantly sprang uh, into And then what happened, my last visit uh, on May 30th, I saw that it was going to be the end, yeah. and I called each of those people up, and I said, listen, very quietly, go to the safe, <laughs> take out your work, whether it's design or copy editing, whatever, and very quietly go through it one more time, tweak it wherever you feel it needs to be tweaked, and I will now write the last three pages, basically detailing the last three years of her life, and I will leave one line blank for the day she actually mm. dies. And that's what we did. And, and she died on, on June 29th, 
Uh, that night I wrote the last sentence. I phoned it in the next morning, and they went to press that afternoon. It was quite amazing. And we are recording this conversation on July 16th. Mm-hmm. So that's essentially three weeks after her death. Within a week of her death, the books had been manufactured, and within two weeks they were in bookstores. And this was always an essential part of my agreement with her. She wanted the book after her death, but upon her death. But she did want it. Oh, there's no question she wanted it. Now, I don't think she knew the book would be a memoir. Mm-hmm. I think that element, I think she thought I was going to write one of my big fat biographies. Did she see, then she didn't see it. She never saw a word, and I never told her I had actually started writing. Because mm-hmm. I, again, didn't want to cause her unrest, you know, because our agreement always was not until my death can anything be published. But as I got to know her over the years, I realized... I knew her too well, more to the point, I cared about her too much to be objective about her. And so I didn't know what to do with all these stories. I couldn't write a straight biography. And actually my publisher said, why don't you do a memoir? And that way you can do two things. You can include all of Catherine Hepburn's stories as she told them, but you can do something better. You can take the reader on your 20-year adventure. Mm-hmm. You can you can ring the doorbell for the first time and we're standing right behind you watching you. And and we can follow you yeah. right up to the time you say Yeah, and the book is a story of um, of your encounter with her as well as a direct reflection of her character and exactly. her style. So it's it's all through my eyes, but it's her through her eyes as well. But last question. Uh, Hamlet dying says to Horatio begs him, report my cause aright to the unsatisfied. How would you do that for Hepburn? Well, I, th- I, th- I think I've tried to. I mean, I, I think that's what the book is. Yeah, I, but what the, what message then, reporting her cause aright, emerges from the book? I say, I think her message, and I, and I actually include it toward the very end of the book, because I basically asked her, and it's just a quiet moment, what's it all about? life you know I mean, why are we here and and I thought it was I felt bad it was such a cliche it was sort of dumb but she picked right up on it as though she wanted to answer and she basically said we're here to work hard and to love somebody and then there was a pause and she said and to have fun and then there was another pause and she said and if you're lucky you remain healthy and somebody will love you back I thought boy that's a pretty good message <laughs> It's it's a message from somebody who had a zest for life. I would say. No question about it, and yeah. never lost the work ethic. Yeah. Never lost that. It's the simple thing, you know. Your work ethic isn't half bad either. This well, is the fourth thanks. significant <laughs> book that you've had published. The book that we've been drawing from in conversation with Scott Berg is Kate Remembered, Putnam's. The publishers, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Mel.